it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. So privileged to have uh, with me in about 15 minutes, former Green Beret, excuse me, former Navy SEAL, uh, and he's a Republican candidate for uh, Congress of Wisconsin. Derek Van Orden will be here to break down what it was like training the Ukrainian soldiers for the last five years. And Russ Voigt, uh, director of the OMB uh, budget for uh, July 2020 uh, to January 2021, currently is president of the Center for Renewing America because the president of the United States is going to put out his budget today for 2023, which is really a wish list and just know where his head's at. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Jada, I love you. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it. All right? It's, that, was a, that was a nice one. Okay. I'm out here. Uh-oh. Oh, wow. Wow. Will Smith just smacked the out of me. Did, out your mouth. Yeah, uh, that was real. Uh, but don't think we'll be talking about the Oscars, and I didn't think we would. But Will Smith smacked Chris Rock about 1130 Eastern time in the face. And I thought, let's change that uh, because of that joke you just heard. Smith later apologized to the Academy, but not to Rock, who said, I got punched by Muhammad Ali and don't have a scratch. He evidently said behind uh, backstage. Unbelievable. Number two. We will have a different future, a brighter future, rooted in democracy and principle, hope and light, of decency and dignity, of freedom and possibilities. For God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. Ah, uh, there you go. A gaftastic President Biden upends his own possible successes with his undisciplined failures overseas as our allies and our enemies seem to equally be as offended. Four major errors have his staff scrambling to fix and make one wonder, can you imagine the reaction if Trump did that? Number one. I tend to think that this has complicated any ambitions that he might have had very, very considerably. Uh, this is going to set back his military for years. It's It's shown the whole world that it wasn't the wonderfully modernized force that you know everybody thought it might be. Uh, this has been a huge challenge uh, for the Russians. But they're not done yet. The war has reached a critical moment in the fighting. The true strategy on both sides, what allies are now really prepared to do. They got to do some more, and Zelensky is getting his patience running thin. And what about the talks? Are there true sincerity on both sides? What would you ask for? And I don't want to take too much time away from Derek uh, to break down the strategy, but let me just give you an idea of what's happening. Uh, there's talks going on. It's going to be over in Turkey. And at which time it looks like President Zelensky had two messages, one to the Ukrainian people. He said Sunday in talks due to take place in Istanbul, his government will prioritize territorial integrity. And reportedly, it's pretty clear, the Ukrainians do not, not only do they not want to give up any territory, they want Crimea and the Donbass region back. Two Russian journalists who were told not to publish his interview, by the way, saying Ukraine was willing to assume neutral status and compromise over the status of the eastern Donbass region as part of a peace deal. 
Russian attempts to break, are still trying to attempt to break through near Kiev. They have not had much success. That, according to the Kiev Independent, Russian troops are attempting to advance there in the northwest and east. They capture nearby roads where the Russian forces are currently being held back. Ukraine is seeking to exploit the shift in Russia's military strategy at the same time. They drove the Russian troops out of this area called Trostinets in the northeast area near the Russian border, partially opening up a road to the provincial capital of Sumy, which had been encircled by the Russians. So this is good news in the north, uh, in the north, that which is great. But it has to stop the Russians from bar- uh, bombing from the sea, which means they need harpoons and surface-to-ship missiles. That they all they want is the weapons. They have the training, the S three hundreds. They have the trainings. They have the S three hundreds in our allied areas in Bulgaria and others. Get it to them. That's all they're asking for. Here is President Zelensky talking about the difference between what he's seeing from his people and from NATO. Cut one. Ukraine can't shoot down Russian missiles with shotguns, machine guns, of which there are too many in the supplies. It's impossible to unblock Mariupol without a sufficient number of tanks, other armored vehicles, and especially without jets. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's pretty clear. He does not have everything he needs. And in Mariupol in particular, uh, it's really agonizing. And he says this. He says, uh, he says humanitarian, it's a humanitarian catastrophe, uh, claiming that there are Russian forces that have taken over 2,000 children out of the city as part of the Ukrainian officials have described as a wave of civilian deportations into Russia. Can you believe that? Can you imagine if your kid was just taken into another country? The reality is the city is blocked by the Russian military. All entrances and exits from the city of Mariupol are blocked. The port is mined. A humanitarian catastrophe. The Russian military is shelling humanitarian convoys. Drivers are being killed. Macron says, alongside Turkey and Greece, they will evacuate the Ukrainian city of Mariupol uh, under a exceptional humanitarian operation. I don't know what that looks like. We're going to launch this operation, he says. Now, about Joe Biden's gaffes. Listen, I understand the sentiment. Vladimir Putin must go. But all you have to add is I would hope the Russian people would make a different choice. You're not you're worthy of so much more than your current leadership, causing you so much heartache. But instead, he ad libs that line. And therefore, everyone says we're not for regime change. And Vladimir Putin's got something to rally his people who are questioning why they're at war in Ukraine. He says, I told you the West just wants to upend me and get me out of power. So here's Joe Biden. Cut 21. We will have a different future, a brighter future, rooted in democracy and principles, hope and light of decency and dignity of freedom and possibilities. For God's sake, this man cannot remain power. And of course, that's not good, uh, even though I feel it. And if you do feel it, stand behind it. And my goodness, he ad libs an impactful line like that, and everybody walks it back. It makes you wonder who's in charge. Now, when Trump was in there, this businessman, very confident with the swagger, people said he's saying things so diplomatically, ham-handedly. And this is why I included this in one of the talking points, because they'd be killing Trump. They'd be like, listen, his secretary of defense is walking him back. His secretary of state is walking him back. And national security advisor is walking him back. He's out of control. He's not really leading the country. He's not worthy of the position. Instead, a guy that was once chairman of foreign relations, a vice president really in control of so much foreign policy cannot be controlled to go on his instincts. He did a few things. And let me give you an idea of what else he said. And we'll go over the impact of his statements after. Cut 23. If chemical weapons were used in Ukraine, would that trigger a military response from NATO? They would 
It would trigger a response in kind. The United States has no intention of using chemical weapons, period, under any circumstances. I did not say that, in fact, the sanctions would deter him. Sanctions never deter. Look, before the war, obviously, we were laying out the consequences in pretty explicit detail with the hope that President Putin would take an alternative course. Ukrainian people have a lot of backbone. They have a lot of guts. And I'm sure you're observing it. And you're going to see when you're there. As I've made clear, America forces are in Europe, not in Europe, to engage in conflict with Russian forces. American forces are here to defend NATO allies. So you see what he's saying there? Number one, when you say in kind, says we're going to hit him back with chemical weapons. When it comes to what he said in Brussels about sanctions not being a deterrent, of course they were deterrent. That's what sanctions were for. You didn't implement them ahead of time in hopes that you would not go in because the threat of sanctions would keep you out. That's a fact. And then he tells and tells people at the 82nd Airborne, you're going to be going to the Ukraine for yourself and see the strength of the Ukrainian people. Obviously, we don't want the 82nd Airborne in Ukraine. These are big. This is a big deal. I mean, come on. I mean, if the, the best insurance President Biden has is his vice president is just totally out of her depth. And nobody wants to see her president, including most clear thinking Democrats. Listen to Susan Page. And I, I go to Susan Page. I like her. But, you know, I, I think that she's somebody with USA Today. She's not there to right wing to, to write conservative talking points. How's that? Cut 24. Washington Gap, as we were saying, where you accidentally say what everyone already agrees is is true. But. Uh, distracting. What are we talking about today? Not the impassioned defense of democracy that the president delivered, but his final nine words where he seemed to be calling for regime change. Distracting and disciplined. Uh, and we'll find out whether it is dangerous, whether it is damaging, whether it causes some kind of reaction from Moscow that would not have been coming just as a result of calling Putin a, a butcher and a war criminal. And, and that's really where the whole Meet the Press panel was. Uh, over 70 percent of the country does not think the president is is competent to run the war in Ukraine or whatever role America has. And over 60 percent thinks we should be doing war for the Ukrainian people. So uh, Zelensky has won us over, but President Biden's leadership hasn't. That's a NBC poll. You listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. When we come back, Derek Van Orden, former Navy SEAL, congressional candidate, will weigh in on what he knows about the Ukrainian forces and what the president's words actually mean. And then Russ Vogt uh, will be with us. He's going to be talking about the president's new budget she's releasing today. And then your calls, 1-866-408-7669, Brian Kilmeade Show. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on Outkick.com forward slash watch. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Then you have the situation in Mariupol, which has become a bit of a Ukrainian Alamo at this point in time. It's fighting to the last defender uh, and pinning down multiple Russian battalions in so doing very heroically. But ultimately, it looks as if it's going to have to to collapse. It's going to be taken. Uh, And when it does, that is a moment of some peril for Ukraine, because now that port can be used by the Russians. 
Yeah, that was uh, David Petraeus uh, talking uh, over the weekend on one of the Sunday shows, and he knows how valiantly uh, the Ukrainians are fighting, but knows how they have to hold on to Mariupol some way, some shape, or form. Derek Van Orden knows, knows all about the challenges of war. He fights him. Now he's running as a Republican candidate in Wisconsin's 3rd District, retired Navy SEAL. Uh, Derek Van Orden joins us now. Derek, welcome. Well, thanks. It's great to be here, Brian. First question about strategy. Mariupol, it's, I mean, you've seen these pictures. It's been totally thrashed. Uh, what would, right. what could, is that somehow holdable? Is there something we could do now to help them hold what's left of it? Well, Brian, without being on the ground and knowing the real practical situation, I would, I would uh, hesitate to comment on that. But what, what you're looking at now is how the Ukrainians understand how they have to fight the Russians. I guarantee you Vladimir Putin thought this was going to be a five-day war and they're, what, 31, 32 days into it? So what you're seeing there is you're getting these large Russian forces coming into the city. Urban warfare is incredibly brutal. And you're seeing these disaggregated small unit tactics that are facilitated by high-technology uh, weapons. That's what's taking place right now. And the Ukrainians are doing a fantastic job. They are tough as nails. What do you do when an opponent wants to bomb you from afar with, with missiles and rockets you can't see? Well, I mean, we went through that in World War II. Anytime you have any type of strategic bombing that takes place, that's exactly what that's like. War is absolutely terrible. The only person that's responsible for invading Ukraine is Vladimir Putin. Let's be real clear with that. But he saw the strategic weakness coming out of the Biden White House when President Biden abandoned American citizens to their fate to terrorists in Afghanistan. That emboldened Putin. So what Vladimir Putin is doing now is he miscalculated how he thought he was going to fight this war. He thought he was going to come blazing in there and do some real fast. That's why he called it a special military operation. He thought it was going to take just a couple of days. Well, the Ukrainians have a plan, and they're exercising the plan. So Vladimir Putin is going to have to continue to escalate the levels of violence because he doesn't know what he's doing strategically. The, the Ukrainians are um, – it's incredibly bold. And I heard another uh, – someone on Fox are talking about the Ukrainians can't win this war because they're up against this big Russian machine. Brian, we lost in Vietnam, and we left – shamefully left Afghanistan after 20 years. We were fighting – the Viet Cong, the North Vietnamese, and then we're fighting the Taliban and, of course, Pakistani ISI. So here's, here's the lesson that Vladimir Putin is learning right now. Any group of people who are willing to fight for their freedom, for their families and their communities over an extended period of time will be victorious. I hear you. Now, if you're um, uh, Zelensky, you're asking for S-300 systems. You're asking for tanks. Correct. Uh, you're asking for the MIGs. Uh, yeah. From what you know about that border, can you get things in and out if NATO was willing to do it? Yeah, you can. Russia doesn't have enough ISR uh, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance platforms to watch the entire border of the Ukraine. Remember, they border five NATO countries. So any one of those countries could move equipment in and out. Um, the issues with training, the resupply, the, the logistics part is another thing that apparently Russians are very bad at. So they thought they were going to come uh, blazing in, uh, you know, all of uh, Blitzkrieg sort of stuff. And uh, 
they got stalled and they can't backfill anything. So when you're giving people weapon systems, Brian, you want to make sure you give it to them for the life cycle of whatever it is. So the S-300s that the Ukrainians have are an older version than the S-300s the Russians have. Um, we're talking about Bulgaria saying that they can backfill the Ukraine with these types of weapons. That's a surface-to-air missile, for folks who don't know what that is. Um, but then what happens to Bulgaria? So we can't give them Soviet block weapons because we don't manufacture them. So we'd have to dig them up. And you want to make sure that you don't you you do not have an interruption in the supply chain. We're seeing that in our economy right yeah, now. Yeah, we'd we'll give them patriots. We promise them patriots, but for some reason they're not taking our word on it. Do you believe that? Even though we gave Poland <laughs> patriots, they're not taking our word. Derek, you train Ukrainian uh, soldiers. What was that like? Uh, they came to our exercises joint. Uh, it's called Jackal Stone and 2011 first to 2012. Um, I worked with a whole bunch of former Soviet bloc countries. I was in Bosnia and Herzegovina immediately following the Dayton Accords in 1996. We lived in a house, me, another SEAL, and like seven SF guys. But these people, like other folks that lived in the former Soviet Union, they, they have seen what real persecution is like. They had a boot on their neck for 70 years, and they don't want to go back to that. That's another factor that Putin did not calculate. So these folks understand that they they can go back to that if they don't pay attention. And let me tell you one thing. I was talking to a friend of mine. This was years ago when I first got introduced to another NATO country, and I'm with their plans officer. And I said – and I mean the plans officer. And I was like – you know, when I joined the Navy, I joined the Navy to fight you. And he looked at me and he said, Derek, you didn't join the Navy to fight me. You joined the Navy to fight the Soviets. We were under occupation. Vladimir Putin did not learn that lesson. He did. And he is in real trouble. Real quick, you think 20 seconds, you really think President Biden's remarks saying uh, Biden has to, Putin has to go is devastating? Absolutely. It's incredibly foolish. In, with a single statement, Vladimir, or excuse me, Joe Biden knocked us off the moral high ground, and he gave Vladimir Putin every single thing he needs to justify this war to his people. That soundbite, I guarantee you, is going to be played a million times in Russia. That was possibly, and this is a big statement, Brian. That's possibly the biggest foreign policy foible that the Biden administration has done. Of course, first and foremost, abandoning American citizens in Afghanistan. But yes, that was incredibly foolish. It's when a guy who's never been in a fight in his life tries to act tough, and everybody can see that, and it's devastating. And we should, we need to be very cautious. And you're in Biden a fight. To be very cautious. And you're in a fight for that uh, third congressional seat uh, in Wisconsin. Yes, sir. So uh, go ahead. Yep, I am. Uh, go ahead and win if it this can, time, Derek. Yes, sir. And if everybody can get uh, Van Orden for Congress.com, I appreciate it. You have a wonderful day. Uh, Van Orden, Derek Van Orden, go get him. Uh, back in a moment. We talk about the budget that the president's going to release any minute. Russ Vogt, former director of OMB News. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share.
a radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. That may be one reason you have that incredible 71% number in your new poll that Americans do not have confidence in President Biden to handle the situation. By the the size of that number. That includes some of his supporters. That includes a fair number of Democrats. And the idea that White House officials first anonymously and then the Secretary of State have to come back and clean something up, I think reinforces the idea of does the president... Uh, can we trust him to respond in a competent way to this war? And that was uh, Susan Page from uh, USA Today, not somebody who gets up every morning and says, I got to praise a Republican. So it's pretty significant of that. The poll also says that 38 percent of the country blame President Biden for the rise in inflation. COVID gets second and third is corporate increase in prices. Fourth is Russia. So that nice uh, the Putin price hike didn't work. And in a generic poll, the Republicans have their first lead in this NBC poll, 46-44 since 2014. With me right now uh, in studio is Russ Vogt, uh, director of the Office of Management and Budget from uh, July 2020 to when President Trump left in 2021. Russ, welcome. Thanks for having me. So um, first off, the direction of the economy and country, did you expect this? Not as quickly of a descent. I mean, we have been so rapidly in the in the gutter since the President Trump left office and this new president took office. I mean, that's the, you know on every level. I didn't expect us to go back to the 1970s so quickly. So when you look at the president's going to release his budget today, and we know he's not going to get it. It's just just what he you know where his priorities are. But knowing that the country blames 38 percent of the country blame him. More than anybody else for inflation is the country right? Because you know the dollars and cents. You also know politics. No, he's he's they're, they're definitely right. I mean, here's the reality: this is going to be an exercise in drive-by budgeting because the country's concerned about inflation. The economy is where it is at, and and so they have to do something that says they care about deficit reduction. So they put all these headlines out. But, but the deficit is going down, right? Well, because COVID spending is rolling off. So you have two years of big COVID spending. Now it's right back where it was, a trillion dollars in spending. But instead of having a plan to get to balance like we did, they've got $14 trillion in deficits, and they're not doing anything to tackle those. And so they have to put something in there like a billionaire's tax to be able to articulate they're doing something, but they're going to have increased spending all over this budget. But, you know, we're going to tax people for having wealth as opposed to earning money. Does that, is, is that a scary bridge to cross? I think it is because unless you have a sale, you've got to have a bunch of appraisers go in there and value, you know, your art pieces, your 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 boats every I mean, year. Every year, it's a it's administratively a nightmare, and that's one of the reasons why in other countries they ditch these things because they lose all their wealthy people, and they can't administer them, so it's a mess. So, if, for example, if you have these paintings, you have this house, each year you're paying more, so it's a depreciating asset. So why would I get it? So I'm not going to buy these mansions, or I'd sell it and move some someplace else. So it'll force people to be active with their money. Is that the theory that a billionaire's tax would would generate? You know, I don't think that they always have a lot of sound economic doctrine on the real world implications. Of they these just things. see wealth and want it. They see wealth, they want it. It's offensive to them that they've got people who are not paying uh, taxes on what they view as their this hordes of wealth. And they don't look to the fact that, you know, people have a vote and they move with their feet. You had to go basically come up with all types of money to tell a bunch of people, stop working, go home, and we're going to find a way to backstop you. So you wrote a whole bunch of checks outside the uh, first responders or essential workers for people not to work. And when the president took over from you guys, he had a vaccine and the work and the workplaces were beginning to open up. So what would you have done differently than he did? 
Well, he had this massive two trillion dollar uh, COVID package when we didn't need it at the at the beginning in of April. His, in the April, the beginning of his administration, his rescue plan, his rescue plan, and then he continued to to spend. And it wasn't just Build Back Better that got canceled. He, all of that spending, a lot of that spending, got reflected in the annual appropriations process. The spending that his uh, administration increased, and that has not slowed down. So I want you to hear the other big story is uh, you guys had a success story. We became energy independent, and it was a choice. Uh, fossil fuels are persona non grata in this administration, despite what we need now, and that is more fossil fuel production of natural gas and oil. I want you to hear some of the exchange uh, from last week on what is going on with drilling. For example, on why we're to, on some of the accusations on how the oil companies are to blame. Let me give you an example. Um, there, there have been some, including the American Petroleum Institute, who have claimed that this is an issue of having access uh, or funds. Um, the oil and gas industry has a lot of permits. Onshore alone, more than 9,000 unused approved permits to drill. And I would note that only 10% of drilling is happening on federal lands. The other 90% is on private lands. But I'm talking about the 10% in that case. So the argument that there are just no opportunities to drill for oil is just not true. Jen Psaki weighing in. What, now you, you're shaking your head. Is she? There are unused permits, right? Yeah, but again... People, those are as a result of the fact that they've taken down the pipelines. So when there's no pipelines, when they don't have the infrastructure that because the federal government has uh, put that in on ice, as a result, you have a whole backup of, of people trying to drill. When you have an entire posture on every level of government of trying to have anti-energy because of your, your view of climate change, you've got, you've got a situation where – People just do not go out and explore energy in a in a way that uh, you would have seen under the Trump administration. You know, I, I think these oil companies are fighting back in a, letter, in a two-page letter. They came back and said, you really vilified us from day one, said we were the problem, and the permits. And they took this dead, They took this argument down piece by piece. Here is Kathleen Sakama um, from the, uh, one of these trade organizations who weighed in. Indeed, there are about 9,000 outstanding permits on federal lands. So she is correct in that respect. However, um, a permit to drill is not the only permit that's necessary. We need rights of way, which also come from the federal government, in order to lay the pipelines and the gas gathering lines. We want to reduce flaring, but we need pipelines in place to capture that gas. And guess what? Environmentalists stop pipelines all across the country. So if we can't get the rights of way and the pipelines to put that natural gas in, we can't develop that oil well. So that's the fact. I mean, for example, if, if I want to break down and tell St. Peter's how they should have beat North Carolina, I watch a lot of basketball, but I've never coached it. These, these spokespeople in Washington who don't have an expertise in these areas speaking out to me is dangerous and an insult to the American people. It's an insult, and, and you know this press operation has to do a lot to put lipstick on a pig, and they get bad economic policy and uh, bad uh, policy that hurts the country on a number of levels, and they have to go out and sell it. And this is what they picked, and unfortunately for them, it just doesn't uh, track out. So you have uh, inflation that's taking money away. You also have a situation where unemployment is down. They say the debt is being reduced. The work, uh, the the people participating in the work uh, workforce is around sixty percent. So six out of every uh, ten Americans. But everything costs more, especially gas and oil. Are there emergency things that you could do right now if you were back in charge of the OMB? Well, we would try to immediately begin to deregulate in a way that they have 
increase regulation. And I think that would be something that would get the, the muscle energies of the American people and entrepreneurs moving in a way that we saw when President Trump took office. I think that's one of those immediate things that you can do, but that we're not going to see that because we have this particular president. So you have a, a situation where they're going to today also announce that they're going to put more money into law enforcement, ask for an additional $32 billion into law enforcement. That sounds like politics because we know for the Democrats, we're trying to defund the police for the longest time, at the very least vilify them or repurpose or reimagine. Yeah, and I'd like to know what they define as law enforcement. Just because it's going to the Department of Justice does not mean it's actually going to law enforcement. I'd want to know what are the grant programs that are being envisioned and who are they going to? Uh, but you know, I'm all for law enforcement spending increases, but that's not what we have seen from the left recently. What kind of hit are we taking in order for international relations? We're not buying Russian oil, which is a small 5% of what we take in, but we are their number one customer, uh, which I, I was astounded at. So when we do that, and if we want to put secondary China, uh, uh, sanctions on China, which could be the next event if China's, uh, Russia doesn't stop this war— what kind of uh, headwinds do we do we receive then? Well, I'm a little concerned about the, all the extent of what we're doing on the sanctions front and the potential for them for other countries to come up with a, a, an alternative to the dollar. I mean, one of the reasons that we are where we are fiscally is that the dollar is the reserve currency of the world, and so we can always print more, and we can always print more. And, and up until that that changes, and you never know when it changes, but it, the the overuse of sanctions can have that impact. And that's one of the things I have some worry about, about the situation that we're in. Uh, we have to take steps as a country. Uh, President Trump certainly used sanctions of a, a, a great amount. Uh, but right now, uh, that is something that I think we've got to be concerned about in the, in the years ahead. Which is interesting because Saudi Arabia says that uh, they'll deal with China on the yuan. And now this alternate SWIFT financial, financial system, well, it looks like China has an alternative and Russia could subscribe to it. Could you put in layman's terms what that would mean? That would mean that there are there is a move internationally away from the dollar. It would be a move internationally for there to be a reserve currency that is not ours and that people when they park their money are not parking it by buying, you know, T-bills here in this country and having to convert into dollars to buy them. That's the real great concern. And because when when investors and other countries do that now, it, it keeps our currency strong. Understood. So you think that that is a real possibility now? As we see Iran, uh, clearly they're not in the family of nations for a good reason. And we see Russia and China closer than ever before. And some of our Middle East partners are upset that we're dealing with Iran and trying to get back into this deal. So they're giving us the Heisman in many cases. Could that be a way to leverage us to come, come do what they say because of this legitimate fear? Yeah, and I, I don't know how immediate the fear is, but I do have the fear, and I think it is coming in the years ahead, and I think we need real stable leadership fiscally in a way that we have not seen. And I, and I do believe that when you are weak economically, when you don't have this uh, – when the dollar is not strong, when people don't have to have the reserve currency being the dollar, that's when you're in a situation when you're now vulnerable internationally from a security standpoint. Well, Russ Vogt is here. He's used to run OMB for, uh, for President Trump. There's a big push in this country to bring manufacturing home in practical in practical terms that the the uh, the budget reform act that you guys put together, the tax reform act under the Trump years was supposed to incentivize people to come home. Have these businesses come home with the decrease in the corporate tax rate? 
You know, I I think they have not in, in, as fast not as we as would fast like we to. Thought. No, and I think that that's one of the things we saw in COVID as well. Is we got to have dramatically more aggressive policies that bring these key industries home. We can't be relying on foreign supply chains like we See, have. I, I agree with that, but I am not in international business, nor do I know international financing like you do. And people in the know say that's going to be that's going to be really hard uh, because the American people are not going to pay more. We don't have the infrastructure, and we, even the the workforce to bring manufacturing back here. What's the reality? Well, I think that may be difficult in the short term, but I don't – these are about degrees. I don't know why over time the American people are not going to accept the fact that they can get a, a cheaper weight on a product so they don't have to wait for some good that's sitting in – off the, the port of, of California so that when I buy a refrigerator – or, or, or a major appliance, I'm not waiting six months because it's made somewhere else. I mean, I think, and particularly when we're talking about uh, you know drugs that are are, are are something that is is life and death. These are the things that are, the American people are going to want built here and more uh, manufactured here. But how do you push private business to come back? Like, for example, if Bayer or um, Moderna are manufacturing their prescription drugs in another country, as president, OMB director, I mean, can you? How do you get them to say this is not in our national security interest for you to do that, especially when it's China? Well, I mean, I think that there are there are obviously if we're putting massive tariffs on China, and and, and that's a, a good thing. And in you my, did, and and that's a good thing, but it takes a long time for those things to work themselves through the system. And 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 my view is that people always felt like you know, it, once President Trump left office, would be back on serve, and we just go back to the, the normal relationship with China. And I think that we've seen some of that, and I think we have to have a sustained commitment in this country that we're actually going to decouple from China, that we're going to – it's not going to happen overnight, but we've got to make it so that our companies are not in China manufacturing. That's just understood and that they take steps to to manufacture here in this country. When you talk to a lot of these uh, men and women, do they understand – is there a patriotic – uh, is there a patriotic blood that runs through their system to say, I see what you're saying? Like when you'd see Nike and Bridgewater and when, you know, uh, uh, Dalio come out and say, hey, you know what? Um, there's no much difference between China's company, more of a strict parent, much different between our, our uh, way of government and theirs and kind of put us down. Nike says we're really a Chinese company. How do you uh, – as the OMB director or someone, the head of treasury, how do you get through to private business? That's not, that's not in our national security when they'll say, I got shareholders to answer to. I make more money if I stay there. Well, I think there's a couple of different uh, groups of people. I think there's a lot of hardworking American patriot businessmen. But I also think that there is a good number of woke capitalists that are largely oriented towards international and multinational companies those are the ones that are very hard. That, that's your Nike example where we, if we, we need a policy in place you know, that says, look, you're not going to do business with slave labor in China. That's the kind of thing that would allow us to be able to, to have an that's incentive. That's the leverage. Yeah, that's the leverage you say. It's not allowed. Russ, great seeing you in person. All right, if, if Trump comes back, do you go back? I wouldn't want to miss it, Brian. <laughs> Absolutely. Russ, well, thanks so much. Appreciate you being here. Uh, he, was, he ran the uh, OMB for 2020 to 2021. Uh, and we'll see if he gets to do it again. I uh, previously was deputy director of OMB from uh, 2018 to 2020. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. 
Jada, I love you. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it. All right? This, that, was a, that was a nice one. Okay. I'm out here. Uh-oh. Oh, wow. Wow. Will Smith just smacked the out of me. Nick. Will Smith lost it on that joke. I don't know what is with him, but he was brilliant as Richard Williams, but no one's talking about that. He might have to give his Oscar back uh, for doing that. It definitely is a breach of conduct. I mean, when is this going to stop? Evidently, uh, according to uh, uh, according to P. Diddy, they made up the Vanity Fair party afterwards, uh, Chris Rock and Will Smith, but he did not apologize publicly. All right, another note, stuff that really matters. Brian on Long Island, listening on 101.9. Hey, Brian. Uh, yeah, 103.9, uh, excuse me. I, I appreciate it. I mean, that was, that was uh, you know, cute and all, but um, I'm really concerned with China buying up our farmland and the fact that they own the vast majority of our pork. Um, it, it seems to be a, a cold red situation between that and, and the border and, and everything going on here at home. Uh, I, I think people can stop watching Hollywood, even if they, they want to slap each other around and start focusing on the fact that we have some real issues here, and uh, they could get a lot worse if, if things don't get better, you know, over in Ukraine. God so, bless the Ukrainians. I know. Uh, we are focusing. I'm, I'm just heartened the American people care 6,000 miles away against people they probably have not met but are in awe of the way they're standing up. And they could see that this is bigger than just Ukraine and Russia in a family spat. But, Brian, to your point, I am really worried about the border more than ever because now they're going to get rid of Title 42 that would have allowed during a pandemic them to turn down uh, men coming over here for no reason uh, because they just want to come here. They get to stay and get asylum. Now that's going to be uh, no longer remain in Mexico. It means come one, come all. We had 164,000 people come in last month at a time in which the last record was maybe 93,000. Do you know what it's going to be like in April when the, when the weather gets better? You know what it's going to be like in May and June? This is going to be a full-out invasion. And this president is out to lunch. Live from the Fox News radio studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Hope you had a sensational weekend. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show coming to you from New York City. Uh, Heard around the country, heard around the world, especially in Ukraine. Michael Goodwin standing by. Uh, and Judy Kurtz will be joining us, too, at the bottom of the hour uh, from the Hill uh, to try to put in perspective what we witnessed last night at the Oscars. Not the best picture, not the best actor, but the best slap. I'm not kidding. Uh, so I don't want to keep Michael Goodwin waiting too long. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Jada, I love you. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it. All right? This, that, was a, that was a nice one. Okay. I'm out here. Uh-oh. Oh, wow. Wow. Will Smith just smacked the out of me. Get my name out your mouth. And he said it twice. And it was real. And then he cried after he won. Not because he won, but because he could get that, that whole war taken away. I'm not kidding. Chris Rosh slapped in the face by the guy who played Muhammad Ali. Will Smith will discuss it. Number two. We will have a different future, a brighter future, rooted in democracy and principles, hope and light, of decency and dignity, of freedom and possibilities. For God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. 
A gaftastic President Biden upends his own possible successes with his undisciplined failures overseas as our allies and our enemies are equally offended. We'll discuss it next. Number one. I tend to think that this has complicated any ambitions that he might have had very, very considerably. Uh, this is going to set back his military for years. It's, it's shown the whole world that it wasn't the wonderfully modernized force that you know everybody thought it might be. Uh, this has been a huge challenge uh, for the Russians. Uh, that is uh, General Dave Petraeus talking about the war as we see it. This is going to be a huge week, critical moment as we get close to talks and as we continue to fight and find out what the Russians actually have left and if the NATO is going to fulfill their obligation to continue to arm the Ukrainians because they can fight like any army on the planet. With me right now is Michael Goodwin, New York Post Fox News contributor. Michael, first off, not, I'm going to talk about your column and, and the war, and it's most important. But what's your take of Will Smith walking on stage and rapping Chris Rock in the face? It's, uh, to me, Brian, it's, it's a weird moment that and somehow uh, doesn't seem as outlandish today as it would have, say, a decade ago or certainly two decades ago. Um, I, I think the sense of bad behavior is now seen as, you know, just one one person's opinion. Everybody's free, right? I mean, the things that people do in public now uh, routinely would have gotten them laughed out of society or locked up, you know, not so long ago. So I, I think it's another symbol of just how crazy uh, American public life has become, how sort of unhinged everybody is just waiting to explode. Uh, it's, hard, it's hard to put your finger on it, but it, it just seems to me not as shocking as I would have been a decade ago. Understood. So President Biden goes over for an impactful meeting with NATO. They're trying to show a, a sense of unity, and they were uh, trying to sense a purpose from the EU, the G7, and the uh, NATO, and they were. But the president along the way, unscripted, is a, is a flat-out disaster. Listen to this. Cut 22. Mr. President, do you want Putin removed? Mr. President, were you calling for regime change? No. But the problem was he said this first. Cut 21. We will have a different future, a brighter future, rooted in democracy and principle, hope and light, of decency and dignity, of freedom and possibilities. For God's sake, this man cannot... Remain power. So what do we believe? Uh, Macron says that uh, we don't agree with that. Uh, the chancellor of Germany, we don't agree with that. Uh, Vladimir Putin, they went to town, said, I told you, Russia, they're trying to overthrow us in the West. What do you think about this? Is it a big deal? It's a big deal, Brian. Um, I mean, first of all, from what we understand now, it wasn't in the speech. So he basically, as I said in my column, he... It, just popped into his adult brain and out his mouth. Uh, I, I mean, for something so important to be said in such a haphazard manner, because if this is American policy, and it, we'll talk in a second, if we could, about what is American policy yeah, when the good. president says one thing and his staff says another, which happened repeatedly on this trip. Uh, if this is American policy, then aren't we at war with Russia? Isn't, isn't that a declaration of war and everything but, but the, the word itself? If you say we're trying to change the leadership of Russia, 
that's not something you do in a peaceful relationship. So I just think the implications of Biden going off script like that are potentially enormous. And as you say, it it fortifies Putin's uh, sense of paranoia. It gives him something to sell to Russian people who are in general, like most people, patriotic in the sense that they that they feel that they are invested in their country and they don't want to see the United States running Russia, I assume, or the International Monetary Fund or NATO. So it, it's, so, it's complicated on so many levels. And to be done in such a haphazard fashion is just ir- irresponsible and reckless. But I think that's who Joe Biden is. He has failed to lead NATO. He is following behind on almost all of these issues. He he went over there, I think, largely for uh, a domestic audience, American domestic audience. I mean, his polls on every issue are underwater, including his handling of the Ukraine situation. So it, it just seems to me to be another right. example of the kind of the, the bad president who is failing at everything and can't even give a speech without mucking it up. As I said in the column, this was at least three times or four times on a three-day trip where he says something and the White House says, no, 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 that's not the policy. And you're not overstating it. I want want everyone at home to hear this because I'm sure people would have – this was in the afternoon on Saturday. Listen to these uh, moments and then the clarifications that came afterwards. I ask you this question as you listen. Who's the president? Cut 23. If chemical weapons were used in Ukraine, would that trigger a military response from NATO? It would would trigger a response in kind. The United States has no intention of using chemical weapons, period, under any circumstances. I did not say that, in fact, the sanctions would deter him. Sanctions never deter. Look, before the war, obviously, we were laying out the consequences in pretty explicit detail with the hope that President Putin would take an alternative course. Ukrainian people have a lot of backbone. They have a lot of guts. And I'm sure you're observing it. And you're going to see when you're there. As I made clear, America forces are in Europe, not in Europe, to engage in conflict with Russian forces. American forces are here to defend NATO allies. I mean, what are you talking, telling the 82nd Airborne you got to be going to the Ukraine and see for yourself? These are major, yeah. major mistakes. Yes, and, and, even, and, and then there was another one about food shortages, right? Which, which uh, if you're an American and he says there's going to be food shortages, oh, my God, and the White House has to rush out. No, no, not here. We won't have food shortages in America. So on and on and on you have these incidents, Brian, and it's just... It, Forget the fact that it's unpresidential. The question is, as you say, who is the president? Who's setting policy? Normally, when the president says something, that's policy. Now, here you have the president saying things and the White House saying that's not policy. Well, who's deciding what policy is? Or is the president so addled that he doesn't know what the policy is that he has presumably already decided or approved. So I think, it, as I say, on so many levels, this is, this right. is a, 
somewhat terrifying kind of example of what's wrong with Joe Biden's presidency. And I really don't want a presidency with Jake Sullivan and Anthony Blinken calling the shots. The one thing about Bush 43, he gets over and he says, listen, I'm a Texas guy. I, I have to get better in international relations. I'm going to have Colin Powell, Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, Condoleezza Rice around me. At the very least, you may say, well, I don't like conservatives, but man, you can't say they're not competent. James Baker and all these other people are consultants. You got your, so you felt as though at least people are going to have learned decisions with relationships. This guy was chairman of Foreign Relations Committee. And listen to this. To back up your point about people losing confidence, in NBC Wall Street Journal poll, 71% of Americans say they do not have a lot of confidence in President Biden's ability to respond to the war. 57% say they are ready, well, we are already at war with Russia or will be within a year. 68% said they would prefer Biden make the economy his top priority. 29% feel differently. His overall popularity is at 40%. And 38% blame him for inflation. Even though they tried to jam this thing down our throats, the Putin price hike, only 6% are buying it's the Russia, uh, Russia's war with the Ukraine. The American people are putting it together, Michael. Well, that's it. I mean, it goes across all categories. And uh, even on COVID, which was supposedly his strong suit and one of the big reasons he was elected, uh, people are, are, are souring on his handling of COVID. I mean, they don't even talk about it anymore, right? I mean, as the deaths reach these, you know, almost a million, uh, when, when 200,000 had died, Biden said, if, if 200,000 people die when you're president, you shouldn't be president anymore. Well, we're now getting close to a million total. So it, there's just so many issues, Brian, uh, that, that you, you look at Joe Biden and you say, is he really in control? It, it does, is he in control of himself? And, and is it possible, even possible, that he's actually running the government? Does he sit through meetings in private, make decisions, have conversations that make sense, uh, and people, uh, the cabinet comes away there knowing what the policy is? Or is this basically a staff-run White House where, remember, that was Joe Joe Manchin's complaint that when he was feuding, he said, it's all the staff. It's all the staff. Somebody else talked about going into a meeting with the president negotiating. I think it was over infrastructure. The president nodding yes. And, and one of the staffers in the back of the room catches the president's eye and shakes his head no. I mean, who's in charge? That was Ron and, Klain. Yeah, Ron yeah, Klain did that. Yeah. So I want you to hear – this is NBC reporter Richard Engel on how those remarks – are not impressing. Anything he did is not impressing Zelensky, who to me is the real world star right now. Cut 18. Well, I don't think President Zelensky was overly impressed. President Zelensky spoke this morning and effectively accused Western leaders. He didn't mention President Biden by name of being all talk. And I'll read you uh, just a, a, a translation of, of his comments from a short while ago. He was talking about Mariupol, a city which is surrounded. It has been under attack, yet it is still not collapsed. And he said, I've spoken to the defenders of Mariupol. I'm in constant contact with them. Their determination, heroism and firmness are astonishing. And then he went on to say, if only those who have been thinking for 31 days on how to hand over Dozens of jets and tanks had 1% of their courage. So he's saying that that 
meeting in NATO, which promised a lot of support, right. still isn't yielding the kind of results that Ukrainians want. And that's the bottom line is, we, I, you know, it's intramural to talk about Biden being, you know, thumbs up for four more years. And is he in charge? That's interesting. But that's what matters to me. How are we helping Ukraine beat Russia for all of us? And clearly we're not doing enough. Well, Brian, I think uh, that that goes to the heart of Joe Biden's leadership of NATO. Uh, if you, just to quickly rewind the last month, uh, he was uh, the whole talk of sanctions as though they were deterrents, and then he says they weren't. But at each step of the of the involvement, the European nations were well ahead. And so it was almost like the public was forcing Germany and France to move faster, and then Biden had to catch up. The American public as well has weighed in and said, and to this day says, we're not doing enough. I mean, that's the, confid- the lack of confidence in Joe Biden's leadership. It is specific Specifically, are you doing enough to change the facts on the ground? And so Biden can talk about uniting NATO and all that's fine, although I think under the surface they're not united at all. Nonetheless, what is the point of this unity if it's not to make a difference? And Zelensky, I think uh, we don't have to agree with everything he says about everything he demands, but I think we should take his word for it when he says it's not enough. We can't win this way. And there, I think, is, is where the, the, the rubber meets the road. How do you define enough? Enough would be to give Ukraine a chance to actually win this war, which seems entirely possible now, even though it didn't in the beginning. That's the great achievement of the Ukrainian defense forces and the people sticking it out. But what is the point of that? If Russia still prevails, it just takes a little longer. That's yeah. what I think Zelensky is talking about. Help us win. Don't just let us survive till we get bombed into smithereens. Thank you. Uh, Michael, it just matters so much. It's so much more than poll numbers up and down, but it indicates the American people are so much smarter uh, than we give them credit for, especially on a war that doesn't affect them directly, but they understand the impact of it and they can relate to these people under fire. Thanks so much for joining us, Michael. It was great. My pleasure. Thank you, Brian. And he's a New York Post columnist, Fox News contributor. You can follow him at mgoodwin underscore New York Post, NY Post. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Phase one for me was the blitzkrieg right to Kyiv and replacing the government with a puppet government and Ukraine becomes a vassal state. The Russians lost phase one. We are now in phase two, in my view, and phase two is digging in defensively, as David said, fortifying so that you protect yourself from these Ukrainian attacks. They're actually laying, the the Russians are laying mines which is a defensive maneuver. And they want to be in these fortifications so that they can lob their mortars and their rockets and their missiles at Ukrainian cities in an attempt to break the Ukrainian will so that that I think they can continue to advance. That's what they're trying to do now. And as David said, don't underestimate them. 
Okay, I'm not under, I'm not underestimating them, but I just don't know uh, what they have left in terms of munitions. I know that they're moving two units out of Georgia into the Donbass region. I also know they're moving somebody, uh, a group, a battalion, whatever they call them, for the for a number of troops that size who are inexperienced but well equipped into the Donbass region. But there, are, how many more ships can you have, and why are they pushing so hard for Belarusian army to get in and begging the Syrians to fight? By the way, the Syrians don't want to leave. So the Syrians are like, yeah, I'm not really into that. We don't really have a secure country here. Meanwhile, Russia actually saved uh, Assad from probably being hanged in the in in the middle of uh, in Central Square over in um, over in uh, in the um, uh, in his capital. So uh, Zelensky is looking at truce talks now. He told the Russians that he's willing to be neutral and maybe give up portions of the Donbass region. What he told his people is, we're not giving up any land at all. Why? Because they keep winning fights. What worries me most is Mariupol. Mariupol falls, and then there goes uh, they go, they're able to take that whole entire port area. They're able to take over the city. Evidently, they're already setting up an alternative government, and they're already telling the Ukrainians who are left in Mariupol about a hundred thousand. If you want to buy anything, use rubles. We're not going to accept your currency. So that could be their plan. Uh, go ahead. If we can't kidnap a governor, we'll set up our own governor, our own mayor, and we'll just take over. But they don't understand. They don't fully understand. Ukrainians hate them more than ever. They will never accept Russian rule. And I'm, I don't think the Russians even know what is actually going on here. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Jada, I love you. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it. All right? It's, that, was a, that was a nice one. Okay. I'm out here. Uh-oh. Oh, wow. Wow. Will Smith just smacked the out of me. Get my name out your you talk about rage. I've never seen anything like it. Obviously, we've never seen anything like it at the Oscars. If I saw it at a party... I would say, well, that guy's got to be drunk. That was Will Smith storming the stage on Chris Rock after he made a joke, which was, um, you know, about uh, his wife, Jada Pinkett uh, Smith, who I guess they were having, they have a, a very unique relationship. Let's leave it at that. So I guess it's an open relationship, a lot of tension between them. I guess she has a alopecia problem, which has trouble growing hair. To me, that should be a no-go. It's not funny. Uh, as someone pointed out to me, it wasn't about that. It was about having short hair uh, uh, mimicking a military movie. So what is the big deal? Having said that, Will Smith loses his mind, even though he's about to win the best actor in the greatest night of his life, arguably. He ends up punching, Chris, slapping Chris Rock with an open uh, open hand in the face, who said afterwards, according to reports, I just, what a great night for TV. I just got hit by Muhammad Ali, and I don't have a scratch on me. Judy Kurtz joins us now uh, from The Hill, and she's uh, the in-the-know columnist. Judy, welcome back. Thank you so much, Brian. You know, I thought Washington was wild, but I know. <laughs> apparently Hollywood is uh, is even more insane. So, so what a couple a of things. Yeah, I mean, as a morning show host, I can't watch all the Oscars, but I try to dip in to see if anything's happening. Usually look for the political commentary. All we got politically were the three comedians making comments about Florida's um, uh, bill about schools and teaching sexuality, what they call the no-gay bill. All right, that's it. In a Ukrainian comment from Milia Kunis, who came out and said, uh, talked about Ukraine without using the word Ukraine, even though she's Ukrainian, which was gutless. But then this happened. What's your take? Uh, my take is even the best Hollywood writers could not have come up with uh, a scenario like what we witnessed 
last night. I mean, everything was completely overshadowed um, by this one moment. Uh, the, the political jokes you mentioned, Ukraine, everything going on in the world, um, this one slap uh, took over the night. And, you know, at the risk of overstating the slap, if you will, I think it gets to something more about our current world right now, where we have these political, these cultural divisions that have the country at a breaking point. Yeah, I mean, for Will Smith, I mean, I did not know that he was rage. But if you look at uh, Ricky Gervais from the Golden Globes a few years ago, he ripped personally everybody in the building, even roles that they played. And he was merciless. And you thought to yourself, he'll never be asked back again. Ricky Gervais says, I can't believe they asked me back again. Afterwards, Will Smith gets the award on stage. Here's a little of his acceptance speech. Cut 35. I want to apologize to the Academy. I want to apologize to my, all my fellow nominees. Love will make you do crazy things. I hope the Academy invites me back. Thank you. <laughs> they kind of laughed, and the Academy's deciding what to do about his award. I mean, that is, I think that bra- breaches the conduct you shouldn't punch a guy who makes a joke about you while he's on stage on international television. Do you think that's in the bylaws? Okay. There might be a line or two in there. Yeah, for Smith, it it was completely self-destructive to win your first Oscar after starting out as a rapper who was getting jiggy with it. Um, And then to completely overshadow that moment for yourself in such an unsettling way. You know, he was in King Richard. Maybe he should try out for a role in King Lear. It was just incredible. Um, What was also striking to me was in left-leaning Hollywood, where performers are quick to speak out about politics, about hot-button issues and the culture wars, it was as if it didn't happen. It was air kisses and a lot of fakery. It was very odd. Yeah, I guess because one of their favorite sons, if it was you know Clint Eastwood, who lost it at 91 years old, and punched somebody, they go, yeah, I told you that's what happens. So P. Diddy has this, breaking news. We should get the, I should have had the breaking news alert. Um, Will Smith and Chris Rock made amends after the now infamous slap, according to Page Six. Uh, P. Diddy Combs confirmed at the Vanity Fair Oscars bash Sunday night that the duo let bygones be bygones after Rock made a joke about his wife. Uh, that's not a problem. That's over. I can confirm that. Diddy told us uh, the beef without elaborating on further details. It's all love. They are brothers. Meanwhile, they had a problem back in 2016 because uh, Chris Rock made a joke about Jada Pinkett uh, boycotting the Oscars. And something I can't really share after that, uh, they didn't like that one. So evidently it's been brewing between them. Do you have to worry if you're a comedian now, it's okay to storm the stage? Will Smith did it and he still got to keep his Oscar? Well, that's uh, what a lot of comedians are arguing is that this, you know, millions of people are watching this broadcast. And if you don't like a joke, does it make it okay to go up and slap the comic delivering a, a bad one-liner? Um I also think maybe uh, some of the folks at this Hollywood bash took uh, former President Trump's criticism to heart last year when he called the Oscars so politically correct, so boring. Uh, no one can say that this year's telecast was boring uh, or politically correct. I guess not. Uh, by the way, for the for those people who care, best picture is Coda, which is inspiring to deaf uh, leading actors. Actress in supporting role, Dariana DeBose. Do I say that right? Uh, Pete, I yep. know you're into West Side Story. Okay, good. Uh, Troy uh, Kotzer, the actor in the supporting role, Coda again. Will Smith wins uh, Best Leading Actor. 
uh, in a leading role. And Jessica Chastain wins The Eyes of Tammy Faye. And uh, Jane uh, Campion won The Power of the Dog as Best Director. So congratulations to them, but no one's going to be talking about that. Here is a little bit more uh, from that night. I want you to hear what uh, Will Smith went on to say, because Denzel Washington was one of the people that gave him advice, put his arm around him right after the incident. Cut 36. Thank you, D. Denzel said to me a few minutes ago, he said, at your highest moment, be careful. That's when the devil comes for you. All right. Uh, there you go. So I don't I don't know what's going on there. But I also think there's a lot of comedians who are getting a little uh, worried about this. I see that Kathy Griffin said, now we have to worry about any time you say a joke that might be offensive. If it's okay for Will Smith, it's okay to charge, uh, charge the stage. Judd Apatow said, too, that type of rage uh, is not healthy. He said it's totally wrong. I think comedians are already worried, right, Judy? You're already worried if you're a comedian about offending somebody. Now this. It, absolutely. And, uh, you know, to do it in such a public and shameful uh, way, I would be concerned if I was a comedian taking to the stage after seeing that. I, it certainly um, has a lot of Hollywood condemning his actions, but also, you know, minutes later, uh, Will Smith took to the stage and got a very nice applause uh, for his best actor speech. So um, although a lot of people uh, on the West Coast are are condemning his actions. A, a lot of people are staying quiet about this. I mean, yeah, I, I just don't, I think it was a surreal moment. I think it's pretty amazing. The other thing on a lighter note, Dana White from UFC tweeted out, it's obvious Chris Rock, and now I have a reason to watch the Oscars, it's obvious Chris Rock can take a punch. Can you imagine having the composure on stage to see Will Smith storm at you, give you a full hit, wind up, hit you across the face, just move a little bit to the right, take the blow, continue to talk and have a dialogue, finish up and walk off. I mean, that is unbelievable to think that he wouldn't totally lose it at that, whether you lose your temper back at Will Smith or you storm off the stage. Completely. And he was able to regain his composure, as you said, enough to make a joke about it or make light of it in the moment, try to kind of make the audience a bit more comfortable with witnessing something that many people assumed was some sort of stunt or, you know, scripted uh, event initially upon seeing it. Um, just amazing, uh, you know, uh, talent to be able to go on with the show after experiencing something like that. So Judd Apatow tweeted this out, and you have this in your column today in The Hill. He could have killed him. That's pure out-of-control rage and violence. They've heard a million jokes about them in the last three decades. They are not freshmen of the world of Hollywood and comedy. He lost his mind. Kathy Griffin said the televised altercation could lead to further violence outside Hollywood. She goes, let me tell you something. It's a very bad practice to walk up on stage and physically assault a comedian. Now we all have to worry about who wants to be the next Will Smith. And Matthew Dowd, former Republican aide to Bush, former Democratic lieutenant governor, candidate for all those defending Will Smith's violence and assault on Chris Rock, would you, have, would you have the same reaction if Amy Schumer had made the joke and Smith hit her? Oh, of course not. Ayanna Presley apparently deleted the tweet praising Smith for defending his wife. I, I'm very curious to see a week from now, how does this play out? I think that for Smith to get ahead of it, he's got to talk to Chris Rock. If they really are okay with it, they should go meet the press together. <laughs> That's an idea. I think also we have to hear 
Rock's reaction. We haven't heard much of that. We saw Will Smith minutes later um, deliver uh, kind of a bizarre uh, acceptance speech at the Oscars, but we really haven't heard um, what Rock has to say about this. I think that will um, maybe shape people's perception of this really uh, beyond bizarre event. Judy, the other thing is big picture question. It was an Amazon streaming show, uh, excuse me, Apple Plus streaming show that won the award for best picture. And they just got into the movie business. Am I, I'm, I don't live every day in the entertainment world, but is Amazon and Apple and those taking over? Are they the studios? Yeah, and, you know, the studios, uh, the streaming services were eyeing that Best Picture prize. I think I heard uh, Ted Sarandos, the CEO of Netflix, like, you know, doing a primal scream from afar when <laughs> Apple uh, TV Plus won that, that big award. That's really the coveted prize that they've all been trying to, to claim for their own. And the, as you can see from this year's nominees, uh, the streaming services really are the future of film and taking over a lot of these uh, award shows. You know, it's interesting. It changes the calculus. Uh, I'm sure the CAA, UTAs of the world have to say, okay, my actor or actress, my director has got to get the money right there. No more let's bet on the box office. More let's take minimal and I want a piece of the back end. Because the, the back end is subscriptions to a streaming service. And in many cases, there is no opening night. Their opening night is when it drops and the theater is everyone's living room. I can't. There's not many industries that have changed this much. Yeah, I mean, it's completely upended the entertainment industry, and in addition to COVID, which has uh, just affected uh, movie theaters and the way the uh, entertainment world does business during a pandemic. So it's a completely different uh, scene than it was even five years ago. Judy Kurtz, thanks so much. He writes a column in The Hill, uh, The No uh, no, uh, columnist, uh, The No, called The No. Thanks so much, Judy. Great perspective. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. You got it. So uh, before we go for this segment, I just do want to touch on what's going on uh, today. Uh, Today, the President of the United States is going to be uh, dropping his first budget uh, for 2023. Now, he's going to get little of it, especially because he barely has majorities in in both bodies. But it goes to show you where he's at. And you're going to see a billionaire's tax, a millionaire's win. You're going to see a windfall tax. You're going to see a lot of taxes, and they're going to be the enemies of the state, the Amazons of the world, uh, the Blackstones of the world. They're the problem. That's how they're going to make it. Also, in an effort to save his hide politically, you're going to see $32 billion in additional funds for law enforcement. No one's buying it. I talk to people in law enforcement every day. I got a series, uh, part of one of my next segments in my series, What Made America Great on Fox Nation. I look at the history of law enforcement, and I talk to a lot of men and women off camera. They know who's got their back and who doesn't. Uh, we also know that today is going to be an impactful thing uh, in terms of what NATO's going to do now that everyone's back in their respective countries. In terms of President Zelensky, truly the hero of the world right now, here's what he says he needs from NATO because of this. Cut one. Ukraine can't shoot down Russian missiles with shotguns, machine guns, of which there are too many in the supplies. It's impossible to unblock Mariupol without a sufficient number of tanks, other armored vehicles, and especially without jets. We know there are jets. They need them. Stop telling them what they need. And number two, I just talked to multiple people. There's plenty of time and room to get tanks across undetected. Get them what they need to win, because not only will they win for us, they will stop aggression for the next 30 years, and maybe the Russian people will knock Vladimir Putin out of power. Thanks so much for listening. When we come back, I'll be able to find out if there's more to know. 
radio that makes you think. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Just finishing up this hour. Thanks so much for listening. And keep in mind, One Nation on, uh, remember, every Saturday at uh, 8 o'clock, repeat it again at 11. And you can get any of my books, uh, briankilmeade.com. I'm able to sign them, personalize them, especially if you have a holiday coming up, a birthday or graduation. So let's find out if there's even more to know than I just told you. More to know. So Bob Saget, so much mystery around his death. There'll be a memorial because of his life. It's coming to Netflix. His fans will finally be able to see the touching, sometimes hilarious tribute from his close friends to put it together for him. Mike Binder, one of Bob's best friends, was the brains behind the January event at the Comedy Store in West Hollywood. There's only a limited number of Comedy Store tickets made available to the public, so very few fans have seen this. The special will even have a big Hollywood premiere at the Netflix uh, at the Joe Comedy Festival. Uh, that's great. Meanwhile, his head cracked open and nobody knows why he went to sleep. Next, 7 in 10 parents fear their kids are becoming Internet zombies. Conducted by one poll, uh, that's the name of the place, on behalf of the Lightspeed Systems Online Safety and Analytics Solution, the study shows that 2,000 American parents of school-age kids have a fear that 64% are concerned about the amount of time their kids spend on the Internet. No kidding. 71% trust their child is mature enough to roam the web unsupervised. Still, the average parent supervised surveyed let their child browse the internet independently at 11. No doubt about it, the uh, pandemic made this worse. Meanwhile, this. Dog years, just a myth. A new formula shows us how old your dog really is in human years. It was done by the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine. Said they have a formula. Turns out the one-year dog equals seven human years rule of thumb is flawed because dogs don't age at the same rate. The study shows that canines age much faster when they're young, but then slow down at about seven years old. The study published in Cell Systems looks at uh, epigenetic clock. So I don't know what they're doing. So what does that do for us? We can't just go seven times one, seven times two, seven times three. The researcher worked with dog genetics experts who examined the blood of 105 Labrador retrievers. That's how they got it. Their work has created a new scale, which shows a one-year dog's genes are already closer to 30 when you're born. Amazing. And by the time they're four, they're like a 52-year-old person. But they're slower. Uh, yes. Uh, let's see. Meanwhile, this. The most boring person in the world actually identified by scientists. And here they are. The three categories. Jobs, hobbies, uh, and, um, and most exciting jobs. So here we go. The most boring jobs. Number one is a data analysis. Number two is accounting. Number three is tax and insurance. Number four, cleaning. And number five, banking. I have to say, I am so bad at all five of them, there's no risk of me ever sliding into that. Well, it was just so boring for you. It wasn't exciting enough for you. This is why you jumped into uh, yeah, television radio. No one says, Brian, I got some data. Would you analyzing it back to me? Uh, no one says, ooh, my house is a mess. I wish Brian was around. Uh, oh, my taxes? Forget TurboTax. Brian does it quicker. Never happens. <laughs> five most exciting jobs. Number five, teaching, which I think is cool. It's new, it's new every day. It can impact kids. Uh, four, health professional. That's kind of good. Uh, your heart's beating a little fast. Maybe you're excited to see me. Number three, journalism. That'll be interesting. Number two, science. Look what I discovered. Pluto, not a planet, is a planet. I think someone's working on that right now. And the performing arts. Which I we think, saw was a little bit exciting last night, the performing arts. Right. Very exciting. Get slapped around if you're Will Smith or be the recipient if you're Chris Rock. And the most boring hobbies. I have none. Most boring hobbies, mathematics. 
Which, by the way, if you like math, you don't feel that's bored. Number no. four, observing animals. <laughs> that's cool going to the zoo, isn't it? Hey, I'm going to the pet store or the zoo. It's too boring, honey. I'll stay home. Watching TV is boring. Excuse me. That hurts my feelings. Yeah, a hobby? Number two, most boring hobby. Religion is a hobby. But, oh, I think I'll worship Jesus today. Nah, I'd rather make a plane. Number one, sleeping, a boring hobby. Thanks for listening. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hope you had a fantastic weekend. We're back in action. And, man, what a pivotal week for this war in Ukraine. So many of you people care. You know, for the most part, when you say Ukraine and Russia, everybody's telling me, you know, I don't really care about that. What about here? What about our border? I say you got to care about both. And if you look at the polls... Over 60% of the country really care about the war in Ukraine and want us to do more. Now, only 40% of the country, according to an NBC poll, actually think the President of the United States is up for the job. Meanwhile, over the weekend, I was able to host One Nation, put together the best roster of guests on this very thing, including Tom Cotton and General Jack Keane, who wanted to go over strategy with me. First, here is Senator Tom Cotton. Keep in mind, Senator Tom Cotton fights wars. He's all over this issue. Here's the latest in his eyes. Then you'll hear from General Keane. The number one story in the world right now, you just saw some of it, it's the war in the Ukraine. We will bring you all the latest intel with the best guests on any show in the country, bar none. But first, let's stop pretending as if there is more than one acceptable outcome here. No, it's not hold off the Russians from taking the capital. It's not stop Vladimir Putin from stealing more Ukrainian land. After one month of fighting, I am convinced the objective from NATO, the U.S., and most of all, Ukraine, can be summed up with one word. A word I never hear President Biden say. Win. Biden has not been all in. He assumed that Putin would win and the Ukraine would lose, and he can't embrace the idea that Ukraine can win. I embrace it. I think we ought to go into this believing the Ukrainians can actually win. And the way they win is for us to get these defensive weapon systems to them as rapidly as possible. There's an opportunity to win. What we need from the president is to get out of this mindset of trying to end the war. Instead, we need to help Ukraine win the war. Senator Tom Cotton and General Keene will be joining us shortly. But this wouldn't be the first time a seemingly unequal fight ended up being a major upset inspired by the use of that one word. What? Come here. Mm. Win. Win. What are we waiting for? Texas! Well, inspirational, right? And when she says, and that's what he all right, he goes out swinging. He got great heart, unforgettable strength, and the power to defeat a superior foe, Apollo Creed. I don't mean to make light of the situation in the Ukraine. It's real, it's devastating. People are dying, women and children senselessly and brutally dying, but now it's time for Ukraine to win. It's up to the U.S. to rush in the tools they need to make it happen. Russians have already embarrassed themselves. Now they need to be flat-out defeated. A Ukraine victory would not be only best in their best interest, but in the best interest of democracies all around the world. With me right now to expand on this, to react is Senator Tom Cotton, who fights wars. He was in the infantry, fought in Afghanistan. He's currently on the Senate Armed Services Committee. Senator, what's wrong with winning? Brian, nothing is wrong with winning. And to continue your Rocky metaphor... The Russian army has proven itself to be far from Ivan Drago, and the Ukrainian army has proven itself to be ferocious and brave in defense 
of its own nation. Unfortunately, it does seem like President Biden has banished the words win and victory from his vocabulary, but that's exactly what President Zelensky and the Ukrainian army may be able to pull off in this war if we do provide them those weapons as rapidly as possible, if we get past these legalistic distinctions about offensive or defensive weapons. Brian, Russia invaded Ukraine. Ukraine, Ukraine is defending its homeland. Every weapon that Ukraine has is a defensive weapon against this Russian war of aggression. Senator, I'm tired of hearing about S-300s. We're going to give it to them. I'm tired of hearing about we're going to get them all the weapons they need to be successful. They're not, they're not getting in, let alone the MiGs. So the S-300s are where? And what do you understand is holding up the Russian defensive system that would have been effective maybe to stop the bombing of Lviv? Brian, S-300s are a former Warsaw Pact air defense system that some of our NATO members in Eastern Europe have. They would be happy to provide those systems to Ukraine. They want assurances from our government that we can provide them other air defense systems like Patriot systems. Uh, I'm not sure they're getting those assurances. Another example of the Biden administration dragging its feet are the switchblade drones, uh, a one-way one suicide drone, if you will. These have proven very effective in combat. Uh, they were promised to Ukraine almost two weeks ago. The Department of Defense announced just a couple days ago they still weren't there. They should have been there the day after it was announced. This is just one more example, Brian, uh, of the kind of weapons that Ukraine needs. And the administration seems to be finding every reason in the world to drag its feet or even outright deny the delivery of those weapons. This is the most impactful trip of the history of, uh, of uh, President Biden's not only presidency, but of his career. He's over there trying to reassure NATO, a series of conferences, EU, G7, NATO, got it. He's made three gaffes, which needed to be uh, cl clarified by his own staff. This is the biggest, after what I thought was a very good speech. Listen. We will have a different future, a brighter future, rooted in democracy and principle, hope and light, of decency and dignity, of freedom and possibilities. For God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. I agree. But his staff didn't. Who was right? President Biden for ad-libbing that line, apparently, or for his staff for walking it back? Well, Brian, what definitely wasn't right is to have the combination of the two. Uh, President Biden seemed to ad-lib there. Uh, he said something that Vladimir Putin will now use uh, as his own, for his own reasons, to say, see, I told you all along that the United States and NATO wants to attack Russia, wants to topple our government. Um, yet then his staff immediately turned around and walked it back. So you get the worst of all possible worlds. Unfortunately, this is fairly common with Joe Biden, uh, is that he, he makes these statements, they have an effect in the world, then the staff immediately walks them back, and that has an effect in the world as well. It is not reassuring for our safety or to our allies. Senator, I've, I've, it's been a long time since I remember Democratic senators as focused as you are in agreement like you are, and many of you, like Lindsey Graham, are that we need to help out Ukraine more. But I think we have to credit President Zelensky for that. He has talked past the leaders to the parliament who represent the people. That is why, in our latest Fox poll, over 60% of the country thinks we're not doing enough. How much credit does Zelensky deserve? Am I overstating it? Not all, Brian. I would add, in addition to President Zelensky, it's the Ukrainian army and the Ukrainian people who deserve this credit. Uh, in, in no small part, they shamed the Western world into supporting them after the first four or five days of this war, Brian. You recall when uh, President uh, Putin gave that speech about 
Donetsk and Luhansk province on President's Day. We actually slapped sanctions on those provinces, on Ukraine, not on Russia. Two days later when he invaded, uh, there were very weak, very milquetoast steps. And that's because Joe Biden and most Western leaders thought that Kyiv and the Ukrainian government would fall in a matter of days. When they didn't, when they held out fighting through that first weekend, when President Zelensky kept posting all those videos, it really did shame Western leaders into taking the actions that we should have been taking months ago, sending Ukraine Javelin missiles and other anti-tank missiles, Stinger aircraft missiles. We're still not doing everything we could do. We still could be sending them those S-300 systems to protect their airspace, for instance, or Harpoon anti-ship missiles coastal batteries that could destroy Russian ships just like they did the other day with one ballistic missile. These things should have been happening months ago, but it was really the bravery and the skill of the Ukrainian army and the leadership of President Zelensky that forced the hand of Western leaders to include Joe Biden to finally do what we should have done months ago. And if you want to stop this horrible regime from spreading that Russian culture, not what their traditions are, but what their government is, stop them in Ukraine. It'll save the Baltics. It'll save Poland, save the surrounding area and a big headache. And if they take troops out of Georgia to help out in the Ukraine, Georgia should go take back those provinces they lost in 2008. Senator, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Brian. All right, always great. Meanwhile, uh, General Jack Keane joins me now with a live look at what's happening on the ground. General, great to see you. First off, with the president's speech and his trip, has he made gains for NATO, for us, for the Ukrainians? Well, I I thought it was one of his better speeches. It was powerfully uh, delivered and certainly very dramatic there uh, in Poland. If I had one criticism of it, you know, other than the flub, is I would have liked to see him focus actually more on Ukraine. I understand he was in Poland. He's talking about defending NATO. Um, and also, I totally agree with you and Senator Cotton. We've been talking about this for a couple of weeks, ever since the Ukrainians have done so well, that the objective is, is winning. It's not just helping the Ukrainians. It's actually winning. Uh, but the best, the best deterrence of, right. against Russia attacking NATO is actually happening inside of Ukraine. Ukraine is crushing the Russian army and, and splintering it rather seriously and making it incapable of conducting an attack on NATO. And right. clearly that is a, a, a point that President Biden should be making over and over again. And he doesn't. So let's go to this. Alex Hogan is reporting what the Russians were saying yesterday. Uh, they, they now have uh, their goal is just to take this area here and maybe bring uh, uh, dialing back what they originally wanted to do, and that is take the whole country, starting with the capital. You're not buying that. Why? That's a false report uh, released by the Russian official. And, and the reason is that they're a month into the campaign, and they're trying to say that they've accomplished what they set out to do, which was the Donbass region and the bridge, the right. land bridge to, uh, to Crimea. But that wasn't their main effort. That's not what they set out to do. What they set out to do was topple the entire country and take the capital city. And they haven't moved any forces into the Donbass region from any other place, indicating it has a priority over, over the other areas. Actually, his forces right. still moving into Belarus, and likely those forces are going to be used to right. attempt to take Kiev, the, the, the capital city. Right. This is just a cover for the fact that they have failure. General, I just want to uh, point to the fact uh, that they have not taken everything. So if you look at the Capitol right here, there's still blasting going on and there's still some movement in the suburbs. You're saying some more troops are coming out of Belarus. And here is what was hit today. 
And we cannot forget something else that's happened today. Kyrgyzstan, which was the first city to fall and the only city to thoroughly fall, they're now pushing the Russians out, which is very encouraging. And Maripol, they're made, the Chechnyans are announcing that they've, uh, they've taken over the capital and a Maripol could, in fact, fall. Your comment on those three things? Well, uh, clearly, Kiev still has the priority. You saw the video there. That's, those are on the outskirts of the city where that shelling is taking place. They have not been able to move their artillery down and encircle the city. And may, so it would clearly be able to destroy that city is, is what they have in mind before they move their combat troops in. Right. And it's not surprising that they finally started to attack Lviv. And they know full well that Lviv has grown in size two or three times its size because there's so many people there from other parts of Ukraine. And eventually, I think there'll, there'll be increased bombardment of that right. area. In the Kharkiv area, which you didn't mention, uh, on your map there, that right there, yeah, the, there's been a counterattack there in the last 24 hours. They've taken back two towns in that area. And also in the Donbass region, down in the east, the southeast there, the Russians uh, tried to take two towns and failed at, at doing it. But right. pretty much the same as, as we were the, the day before, stalemated right. activity, tactical moves gotcha. on, uh, on both sides being done. General, thanks so much. Uh, great perspective. Uh, this will be a big week. Just give the Ukrainians the material they need to win. They'll do the hard stuff. General Jack Keane, thanks so much. Man, I love talking to those guys. Cotton and Keene all over this war in Ukraine. When we come back, oil and gas. The role it's playing in our security, the role it's playing in sanctioning Russia. Tim Stewart on deck. Don't move. It's Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everybody. You cannot talk about this war in Ukraine and not talk about Russian oil, and oil in particular, how much it is per barrel, how much it's costing the American people. But most importantly, why aren't we just stopping and sanctioning all the oil and drilling more here? Tim Stewart is president of the U.S. Oil and Gas Association. Tim Stewart makes it all make sense or tries to define what the problem is with drilling at home. Joe Biden entered office, the state of North Dakota was producing one and a half million barrels of oil a day. Joe Biden, because of his policies, has now reduced that by half a million barrels a day. You know how much oil we have imported from Russia a day since Joe Biden has been president? On average, 600,000 barrels a day. I'd rather buy half a million barrels of oil a day from Governor Doug Burgum of North Dakota than from Vladimir Putin. Governor Christie is right. Of course he's right. Why are we importing oil when we can pump it ourselves? Our process is much better and safer than anything Russia can do. That's a fact. That's not opinion. Oil and gas executives agree. They penned a letter to the president of the United States outlining the benefits of oil production in America, not Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, or anywhere else. In a letter, they pointed out some of this. It goes on for a whole page, but here are some of the highlights. Hostility toward the oil industry after canceling the Keystone Pipeline was evident. Thousands of leases held up in litigation by environmental groups, and they've done nothing. Before allowing development of new leases, the government conducts studies that take years, and not all lease land has oil. That's why they're not taking advantage of it. 4,621 drill permits are still awaiting approval. Why doesn't the president do anything about that? Tim Stewart joins us now, the president of U.S. Oil and Gas Association. Tim, I really sense the anger in that letter. Tired of being beaten up, and now you're being blamed for gouging. Your reaction? 
Brian, it's good to be with you. You know, it's interesting. The trade associations that signed that letter, we believe there's actually common ground we can meet with uh, on with the administration. But the reality is that they, need, they do need to stop demonizing what we do. And if for us to meet on common ground, they've got to go back and take a hard look at their policy decisions and probably uh, backtrack on a significant number of those. Uh, so we can be able to to get back to where we were a year and a half ago. So you got 9,000 leases. I'm not in the oil business. You are. Why aren't you using them? Why aren't you drilling? They keep saying this over and over again. That's a great question. You know, uh, and this is where the White House isn't telling the whole story. So of those 9,000 permits that have been approved, what they're not saying is it's actually a two-part process. I can get a permit to drill. I can start bringing resource out of the ground. But if I don't have a right-of-way to be able to build gathering lines and other infrastructure to get that resource to a pipeline, to get it to market, that permit to drill doesn't do me any good. And so a significant number of those 9,000 leases are held up on the infrastructure side rather than the drilling side. And the White House needs to figure out how to address that and do that quickly for us to be able to do what we need to do. So the president uh, promised uh, more uh, LNG to Europe, 15 cubic uh, meters of uh, whatever uh, measurement they use there. Does 15 do it? Did they discuss this with you ahead of time? Well, that's a great question. And the president, we all listened to what he said, and we frankly agree with him. We think that the, the U.S. LNG uh, opportunity there is huge. We have uh, plenty of capacity, and frankly, our gas is cleaner than the Russian gas. Uh, there's plenty of opportunity there. The, the challenge the president has, though, is he made promises to our European allies. Now he's got to come back and talk to the industry about how to deliver on that promise and again, to the infrastructure uh, situation, he's got to help us address uh, that infrastructure so we can get the gas to the, to the LNG facility so we can get it overseas. There's another issue, Brian, as well, that he needs to figure out how to address, and that is how do you convince Wall Street that the U.S. oil and gas industry is a fair and a safe bet? They spent 15 months telling them not to invest in our industry, and now they've got to come back. And yes. if they want this to work, they need to say that this is a national security and a national economic policy priority. So start investing right. in our industry. And Tim, you guys got to start speaking up and standing up and stop being a batter, you know, stop being a victim of these environmental groups. And now they need you. And I think it's time for these oil and gas executives and people like you to take control of this and take control of the narrative by doing shows like this. Thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, I'd love to get to a time in which we're not paying between 5 and $7 billion to Russia. That is the free world for their oil. Then that'll get their attention. When we come back, Robert O'Brien, former National Security Advisor to President Trump, and Gary Kasparov, uh, best uh, chess player ever, as well as an activist against Russian aggression. And the former Russian now living in New York City tells us how close Vladimir Putin is to being deposed. Is it close? We'll discuss it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Hope you had a great weekend, Brian Kilmeade Show. I really appreciate you being here. And by the way, our podcast is going up, too. If you ever want to get our podcast, briankilmeadeshow.com. Just order the podcast, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get it, uh, please order it. Because we're, we're now among the top-ranked podcasts in the country, and that's all because of you guys. Uh, meanwhile, I have a chance to host One Nation over the weekend 
and have a chance to interview the most important people in the country. And I'd love to be able to bring them to you now. And that's why I'm going to bring to you, uh, I brought you Tim Stewart and Tom Cotton and General Keene, but I also want to bring forward Robert O'Brien and Gary Kasparov. You know Gary Kasparov as the as a, the, the activist who's been expelled really from Russia, and he left the Soviet Union as the best chess player in the history of the world. But is he's so eloquent and understands so well what's going on and what's at stake when it comes to this war in Ukraine. He comes, he comes into studio. And Robert O'Brien, National Security Advisor, is one of the MVPs for President Trump, was able to rescue about 25 hostages. Man, imagine if he could deal with Brittany Griner, as well as weigh in on Vladimir Putin, the guy he dealt with for up close and personal. So here's Robert O'Brien, followed by Gary Kasparov. I think you'll enjoy the, these, uh, these lessons from One Nation. The White House cleaning up after President Biden all day. We told you at the top of the show how president, the president said today Putin cannot stay in power. And the White House immediately walked it back. But that wasn't all. The president also hinted at U.S. boots on the ground here. You're going to see when you're there, some of you have been there, you're going to see, you're going to see women, young people standing, standing in the middle of the front of a damn tank just saying, I'm not leaving. Wrong. The White House now insisting U.S. troops are not going to the Ukraine. Then President Biden said this about chemical weapons. And to clarify on chemical weapons, could if chemical weapons were used in Ukraine, would that trigger a military response from NATO? It would, be, it would trigger a response in kind. Wrong again. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan setting the record straight on this one, too, saying the U.S. has no intention of using chemical weapons under any circumstances. Off script, President Biden struggles. It's caused him problems at home, which is why he rarely gives interviews. But now, the biggest, most important trip to date, maybe in his career, the stakes are just too high for one gaffe, let alone multiple missteps, even with the media cooperating by being his personal cleanup crew. Joining me right now, former National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien. Robert, those three gaffes, am I overstating the gravity of it? They walk back immediately. Are you surprised it happened? Well, this has happened before. Remember, uh, President Biden said that if Taiwan was attacked, uh, the U.S. would get involved and defend Taiwan. I actually thought that was a good statement. And frankly, the statements that he's making today are putting some risk on the table and complicating things for Soviet for Russian planners. So, uh, you know, maybe it's better that we not talk about what we're going to do or what we're not going to do and let the Russians worry about it. Uh, but at least President Biden's statements, if they hadn't been walk, walked back, would have given Putin some pause, perhaps, on on the atrocities he's committing in uh, Ukraine. So I, I wish the White House wouldn't have walked back the statements he made. It, it created some ambiguity that might have been helpful. Do you sense that we'd be here if President Trump was still president? <laughs> we'd never be here. I think everybody in the, in the world knows that. Uh, uh, Vladimir Putin would have never thought, and his generals, Patrushev, who is his national security advisor, uh, uh, who I negotiated with, uh, Gerasimov, his chief of staff, uh, that General Milley interacted with, uh, they, they knew that... Uh, uh, taking an action like this in the, with, with President Trump in office would have never been tolerated. Something else is happening which might be as impactful. This Iranian deal that we might be cutting, Russia is going to be paid to take out enriched uranium out of Iran's peaceful nuclear program. They're going to get billions of dollars and going to get immediate sanctions relief. And then the Russians say, get this, Robert, if we leave this deal after it's signed, they will give the Iranians back the enriched uranium. Yeah, so the... Uh... The, the, what, what's so absurd about this is at the time that Russia is overrunning Ukraine, committing war crimes, as the administration has said, demolishing cities. And by the way, my heart's just breaking for Lviv. I spent time there. It's one of the most beautiful cities in Europe, a historic city that's survived empires and world wars and it's being destroyed now by uh, Russian bombardment. 
while this is happening, we outsourced our negotiations with the Iranians to the Russians. We had the Russian ambassador negotiate on our behalf with the Iranians uh, on this new JCPOA, which is a terrible idea. We'll put billions of dollars in the Ayatollah's hands. They'll, in turn, just like they did with the first JCPOA, use that for terrorists, the Houthis, the Hezbollah, Khatib Hezbollah in Iraq, uh, the Syrian regime. And, and, and it will also lead to nuclear proliferation because they're going to be two to three years away from getting a nuke under the agreement uh, and being recognized as a nuclear power. You don't think that Turkey and Egypt and Saudi Arabia are all going to want their own nuclear weapons when they when they see the Iranians emerge from the JCPOA as a as a recognized nuclear power? So uh, th this is really a bad deal, and 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 outsourcing the negotiations to the Russians is no surprise that they're walking away with a a big chunk of U.S. dollars since they were the ones negotiating the deal for us. It's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. And finally, you've gotten 25 Americans over your course of your career, especially the Trump years, uh, out of uh, hostage situations. Uh, in the worst situations possible. Among the people that are being held against their will is WNBA star Brittany Griner in Russia. She's going to be jailed at least through May for they reportedly carrying some type of liquid um, uh, a drug in, and an EpiPen, some type of, uh, uh, and some type of device to smoke it with. Whatever it is, how do you get her out? Well, and I don't want to forget Paul uh, we, uh, Whelan and Trevor Reed, who've been held for now several years in Russia, uh, two Americans that uh, we want to get home as well. So, uh, look, the Russians are following the Iranian footsteps. They, they saw the Iranians get billions of dollars at the conclusion of the, the first JCPOA in return for releasing a couple of American hostages. There's, they watched the, the uh, Chinese uh, take two Canadians hostage uh, in order to free their, their Huawei executive citizen from, from Canada in a swap. And now the Russians are going down this hostage uh, policy, diplomacy policy, where they either want money or they want a prisoner right. exchange uh, from the United States. So it, it makes it very difficult to get Brittany or, or Paul or Trevor out. Uh, but we've got to work very hard on that. We cannot have America. We cannot let these authoritarian regimes around the world hold not just these American, these individuals hostage, but hold our country hostage by taking our citizens when they're traveling abroad. Uh, so we've got to have a tough line on this sort of uh, behavior by Russia, China, right. uh, or Iran. 5.30 in, uh, on the West Coast. I don't feel bad. You could still have dinner tonight. Thanks so much for joining me, Robert. Wonderful being with you, Brian. Thank right. you. Good luck on your reservation, and please wear your mask out in California. Let's bring in Gary Kasparov now. He's chairman of the Renew a Democracy Initiative, author of Winter Coming, Why Vladimir Putin and the Enemies of the Free World Must Be Stopped, and the Best Tennis play, uh, uh, Chess Player That Ever Was. Uh, Gary, what's going on inside Russia right now? Okay, uh, so just... I had to make comments about, about Robert's, uh, Robert's presentation. And uh, so I have been uh, very consistent criticizing U.S. foreign policy for administrations from Bush 41 to Biden, to Democrats, to, to uh, Republicans. And I hate seeing, you know, just uh, Russian blooded hate being used as partisan weapon. So before I start telling you my criticism of this administration and the failures, I have to say there's a lot to be said about Donald Trump's admiration for dictators, his contempt for NATO, for Europe, and, and uh, his uh, intentions to, to leave NATO. We would not be in this situation because probably America would not right. be in NATO. Okay, I sorry. But, now, let's but, but, to, but I will qualify that. Uh, I've talked to any people. He never wanted to leave NATO. Wanted okay, to that's, uh, I trust, I trust yeah. Ambassador Bolton. But let, let's you know, say okay. there's plenty of, of, of blame to be spread around. But right now, Joe Biden in the office, and I couldn't agree more about the Iranian deal, by the way. That's one of the problems. I think that's, that was a part of the negotiating package uh, for Americans and, 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 and Putin when they negotiated. And that's one of the reasons why America was so slow in imp imposing sanctions. And even now, they're not doing enough to, to, uh, uh, to topple uh, Russian... Uh, you say we're doing less than our allies. 
it's, it's not, I'm not saying that. You would look, you know, look at the, at the sanction tracker. We have the website called fightforukraine4number.org, and you could see that America is, is as usual, leading from, from, from behind. Now, going back to Russia. So uh, we could see, actually, that it's, there was a, some sort of a split between Russian generals uh, who are assessing situation on the ground and Putin's geopolitical ambitions and fantasies. I think that, you know, that's the, the, the recent statement that they would like to actually limit the goals uh, um, to take over south and east of Ukraine. It just is a reflection of, of their understanding that they cannot take Kyiv. They, they don't have enough forces there. Ukrainian defense is too strong. And they try to minimize the damage because they, their losses are staggering. So they, they lost more soldiers uh, 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 killed in action than in Afghanistan for 10 years. And if you multiply this number, 16,000, by four for wounded, they lost probably 40% of the invasion force already. Does he know this? And does he know that he's losing? Look, I think he understands something is going wrong because they're bringing troops from everywhere, from Russian military bases in, in Armenia, in the Republic Georgia. of Georgia, from Far East. You know, they just, they, I, I saw the, the list of Russian, Russian battalions you know, brought from, from Petropolis and Kamchatsky. So the, he's, Putin is desperate because he cannot accept the failure. But the generals, they, they have to conduct the war. I mean, they understand the, the reality on the ground. And that's why, I, again, couldn't agree more with people who, who, who spoke on the show, Senator Cotton and others. This is a time for America to lead the world, not from behind, but to lead the world and declare that the goal of this war for Ukrainians is to win because that's the first step to, to topple Putin's dictatorship. We can do the rest in Russia, but it's very important to remember that he says what actually Biden, President Biden said. I think it's his instincts. He was right, but then unfortunately was backtracked by the, by, by, uh, the White House and other, other officials. So that should become a sort of a, a strategy for the, for the free world. And uniquely, Europeans don't have to be pushed. It's just, who could have imagined that Europe, and Germany especially... You can't believe it. No, no, I, yes. could you believe that now Germany is actually, it's, 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 it's ahead of America in, in, in pushing for the sanctions? And if we could get them off Russian oil and gas, we'd be devastating. If they're their economy and give them the freedom, it's, they it, never should have done it. Exactly, but it's, Final thought, real yeah, quick. But it's, it's not actually such an oil and gas, you know. It's, you cannot have any ambiguity on sanctions. It should be made very clear that sanctions will stay as long as Russia yeah. remains aggressive yeah. and a danger for, the, for its, her neighbors. So, I mean, there's so much at stake in over the weekend. Uh, to, we got word that re- talks are going to resume. They're going to take place in Turkey. You know, Ukrainian said today. The Russian said tomorrow. My sense is the Ukrainians are not willing to give up any territory. They are really dug in and know they can beat the Russians head-to-head when they face off and don't want to give in because they have more bombs. Doesn't seem right. I hope they hold out. Uh, meanwhile, coming up next, what is the state of the economy? You know, for the most part, 34% of the country uh, blame the president for the rise in inflation. Uh, number two, COVID at 22%. So Joe Biden's effort to make the Russian war the problem or Donald Trump the problem has not worked. So I asked Stuart Varney to join me. Stuart Varney is going to be coming in for the Box Business Network, talking about what, where the economy is heading and how inflation is affecting you. As if you don't know enough already, you're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everyone. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you're enjoying these interviews. And if you you ever miss them, One Nation Saturday night, 8 and 11, uh, where I have a chance to ride the breaking news as we do every weekend, as we do here. So I got some good news, too, on the economic front. People are starting to take the fact that we're still leaving Russia with oil and gas revenue seriously. 
the German economics minister, Robert Habeck. He traveled to Qatar over the weekend to negotiate, get this, liquid natural gas deals that are going to help reduce the country's reliance on fossil fuel from Russia. Awesome. He managed to secure an agreement on his very first day. We are helping out to a degree we could help out so much more. And you've heard me say that before. And then you're hearing others say that they can help out, like East Timor and other people that say that there's places in the world that you wouldn't think that have natural gas that could provide it to Europe. And that's got to happen permanently. We can never be the best customer of Russia in any way, shape, or form with Vladimir Putin there. So I had a chance on One Nation to talk to Stuart Varney, but I asked him broad strokes, where is inflation now? How are people paying for it in their groceries, in their gas, in their life, in their mortgage? And where is it heading? I think you're going to love my sit-down with the host of Varney and Company. Let's listen. I don't need to tell you everything is costing more, 8% more to be exact. And whether it's President Biden, the pandemic, or Russia is to blame, it doesn't change the reality for everyday Americans. 64% of people are already living paycheck to paycheck. And now they're being forced to pay more for things they need. Gas. Forget about it. It's madness at the pump. $1.37 more per gallon. Probably more where you live. Uh, that's one last year, by the way. That means the average American family is putting out $2,000 this more this year around than last year. But because groceries need to be delivered to your local market, it's a domino effect. You get it? The price of food skyrocketed. So look at this. Bacon up 18%. Fresh and frozen chicken parts up 15%. Whole milk 12 Flowers uh, almost 12 Apples up 7.8%. And you all know that this year we're at an inflation rate that is a four-decade high. It's costing the average U.S. household, which you can relate to directly, $300 per month. And if this continues, it could wind up costing you $3,600 this year alone. And right now, get this, 34% of you Americans say they are having trouble paying bills each month. They can't afford it. And you can see why. So what's the solution? What can Americans do in the meantime? Here to break it down, the best in the business. Stuart Varney, host of Varney & Company. Stuart, you do a great job every day taking complicated issues and narrowing it down to your audience. Okay. Breaking it down to what it means for Mr. and Mrs. Jones, not to Mr. and Mr. Wall Street. Okay. Those numbers mean what to you? The first thing I want to say is that those numbers that you just quoted are going to get worse in the immediate future. Food price inflation is about to take off. You, th you think it's bad already, and it is. It gets worse. A couple of reasons. Number one, Putin's war. You can't plant new wheat and cornfields in Ukraine and Russia when there's a war on. And they are major suppliers of wheat and corn to the world market. That's corn and wheat is off the market. So wheat prices, corn prices going through the roof. Furthermore, Russia is a major supplier of fertilizer or the, the things that go into fertilizer. That's been cut off. So you can't have fertilizer for the spring planting and the fall planting. In other words, crops are going uh, to be very disappointing. Shortages of all kinds of food, food price inflation here at home takes off. And around the world, it will have serious implications. You realize that when wheat was going straight up in price 12 years ago, that helped set off the Arab Spring, which resulted in regime change in some of those countries. You could have exactly the same thing happening again in the next 12 months to two years. But in the immediate future, in America, food price inflation takes off. A couple of things. You see people abstaining to condemning 
abandoning Russia like Brazil, it's because they need Russia's fertilizer. That's right. Right? And you see people abstaining in India because they need Russia's arms. So everyone's right. looking out for their self-interest. But being that you know this, and now you've told our audience to know this, can't countries adjust, grow more, and now we're in the spring, to adjust to the upcoming well, shortage? You've got to talk about the fertilizer problem, haven't you? You can't grow really vigorous crops without fertilizer these days. And fertilizer is in short supply, and it's going through the roof in terms of price. Right. Further, what about diesel? We haven't even mentioned that. You talk about gasoline. Diesel now averages more than $5 a gallon in the United States. So a trucker with a big rig, a 300-gallon tank, you're looking at 1400 bucks to fill it up. So All of that goes into the production process and the price of the production so process. So people watching us right now that have to rotate which bill they're not paying or they go paycheck to paycheck, what advice do you have for them besides cut back? That's, that is the advice, isn't it? Cut back on everything. Your standard of living is going to fall. That's right. true for most people in America, I would say. Your standard of living begins to fall. But you know, there's a limit to what you can do about it. You've got to eat. Right. Okay, so you have maybe a less valuable, less expensive item. Just quick story. I was in a supermarket just last week. $7 for a one-pound loaf of whole wheat bread. Right. Seven bucks. A few months ago, it was five. Right. I know you're laughing at me because you don't think I go out and buy bread, but I do. No, you and I do. notice the price but very knowing closely. But you, you're going to be making your own bread and saving that, <laughs> but still you got to pay more for the ingredients. Stuart, always great to see you. Thanks so much for helping us out. I always love talking to Stuart. He puts in a layman's terms. He does not get caught up in the Wall Street Journal on those Wall Street executive lingo. Even though he could, he's got enough money and enough kids and talks about what it's like as a parent uh, as, well as, a, as well as an adult trying to make it in this world. By the way, when asked about inflation in this NBC poll, Almost everybody blames the inflation being this high, almost 9%, on President Biden. That is why his poll numbers are at 40%. You know who's second? You think they're going to blame Donald Trump, grab a Republican? COVID is second with 28%. Corporate increase in prices is 23%. And the war in Russia is 6%. That's why in the generic poll, for the first time since 2014 in this poll, Republicans uh, have 46% of the vote, Democrats 44%. It could be a bloodbath. A bloodbath in the midterms. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to listen to me and watch me on Fox and Friends and keep it here on the Brian Kilmeade Show uh, each and every day. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.